My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode seven of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Last time, we saw the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius overcome the plague and famine eating away at his country, reform his decimated army, and lead it personally against the German and Sarmatian horsemen who were looting and burning the Northern Empire. Despite several setbacks, Marcus stayed resolute and went from being a hands-off emperor who ruled by decree from Rome to an accomplished general with a knack for ambushes. In doing so, he gained the undying loyalty of his troops and a sheen of the divine since several weather-related events seemed to miraculously intervene on behalf of several beleaguered Roman armies over the course of the war. But Marcus had to break off his campaign on the cusp of a total victory when he was betrayed by one of the few people in the empire with the pedigree, authority, and accomplishments to challenge him for the throne. Episode 7 Biting the hand that feeds you. The messenger nervously walked his horse south, down the main avenue of the legionary encampment. Thousands of soldiers are going about their business under the hot Syrian sun, drilling, repairing weapons, baking bread, and loading wagons for the campaign to come. The tents stand in meticulously straight rows, and off at one of the gates, a cohort is returning from a 20-mile march with loaded packs and full sets of armor. The messenger swallows hard. He's been paid a lot of money to carry this message, but the man he has to carry it to? Well, Gaius Avidius Cassius is not known for kindness, nor his patience, and the messenger suspects that the message he carries is not full of good news for the general. This encampment, one of several now ringing the city of Antioch, is full of men in rebellion against the rightful Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who is busy waging a war against the German and Sarmatian tribes in northern Europe. The avenue eventually ends at the Praetorium, where the messenger knows he's likely to find Cassius. The guards at the entrance check him for weapons, but after seeing the seal on his message case, they let him through. An aide-de-camp seizes the case, opens it, and reads the scroll inside. His brow furrows in confusion, and after a minute he walks it over to an older man studying a map laid out on the table. This, the messenger knows, is Cassius. His hair is thinning and a bit streaked with gray, but his body is still fit. He holds himself straight with his hands clasped behind his back. His piercing eyes sweep up to take in the messenger, and then accepts the scroll from his aide before he frowns down at the text. The scroll has only one word written on it in ancient Greek, emanes, which simply means, you are mad. The general's lip curls upward at this. He crumples the scroll and drops it to the ground. His eyes lock on the messenger. No reply, he said, waving his hands in dismissal before turning back to his map. No one is certain what caused Avidius Cassius to rebel in 175 AD, 
But whatever his reasons, the 45-year-old war hero had become the second most famous and powerful man in the Empire after the death of Marcus's co-emperor, Lucius Verus, just a few years before. After the Eastern legions hailed him as emperor, the richest provinces of the Romans possessed lurched out of Marcus's orbit. Quickly, Cassius overcame all resistance in Egypt, which Rome relied on to supply it with grain. With the wheat shipments from Alexandria cut off, famine would ensue if nothing was done. People began to panic, and from his base on the border of Germania, Marcus had to formulate a response. But why had Avidius Cassius bit the hand that had fed him so well? Cassius was a patrician of the highest breeding, and his ancestors included Herod the Great of Judea, the first Roman emperor, Augustus, and distantly, the Greek kings of the Seleucid dynasty that had once controlled much of Central and Western Asia. He was in some ways Marcus's opposite, an effective pragmatist who had no time for philosophy. His own father, Gaius Avidius Heliodorus was a politician, orator, and philosopher of the Epicurean school, who had served as a prefect of Alexandria. Heliodorus preached that the goal of life was to attain a state of untroubled peace of mind and contentment, which is actually similar to some of the objectives of the Stoic school Marcus subscribed to, although the schools take a pretty radically different approach to getting to those end results. But Cassius had never embraced his father's philosophy, or anyone else's. He'd come to think of an untroubled mind as fine for philosophers who lived cloistered lives, but he'd observed firsthand that if you didn't want your life controlled by the whims of other men, you needed to attain power and act decisively to protect it. The Augustan history includes a letter purportedly written by Cassius regarding his rebellion. Historians argue over its authenticity, but it probably does represent the sentiment of at least some of the population at the time. This is a section of that letter. Quote, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus philosophizes and meditates on first principles, on souls and virtue and justice, and takes no thought for the state. There is need, rather, for many swords, as you see for yourself, and for much practical wisdom, in order that the state may return to its ancient ways. And truly, in regard to those governors of provinces, can I deem proconsuls or governors who believe that their provinces were given them by the Senate and Antoninus only in order that they might revel and grow rich? You have heard that our philosopher's prefect of the guard was a beggar and a pauper three days before his appointment, and then suddenly became rich. How, I ask you, save from the vitals of the state and the purses of the provincials? Well then, let them be rich, let them be wealthy. In time, they will stuff the imperial treasury. Only let the gods favor the better side. Let the men of Cassius restore to the state a lawful government. Unquote. This caricature of Marcus as a man, with his head in the cloud, seems to be repeated by his enemies, but there's no real evidence to support it. If anything, the best historical sources show him as a savvy wheeler and dealer who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. 
For instance, last episode we saw him shrewdly sowing dissent among the Germanic alliance he was facing, weakening it and allowing his armies to eventually crush them in battle. In contrary to Cassius's criticism, Marcus gathered a great many swords for his German campaign. But the insult may be more pointed at Marcus's habit of relying a great deal on diplomacy and duplicity to beat his enemies, whereas Cassius seems to more in favor of a more energetic policy and head-on battles. His reference to the beggar who became prefect of the guard refers to Pertinax, the son of a slave who went on to be an extremely successful military commander under Marcus, and the rich provincials and governors likely include Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus, another provincial who was not a man of the highest breeding, but who led numerous successful campaigns against the Germans, and who Marcus married to his daughter. Although Marcus's mediocratic streak may have been good for the empire at a time when many of its best leaders had fallen to plague and war, it breeded at least some degree of resentment among his senators, who viewed high government positions as their exclusive domain. But if Avidius Cassius disapproved of upjumped commoners and men of philosophical character, what did he believe in? Avidius was known as a harsh disciplinarian and sometimes crucified his own soldiers for looting, a punishment usually reserved for slaves. His troops once mutinied on him while he was stationed on the banks of the Danube and wearing only a loincloth. He strode out of his command tent and told the rebellious troops to, quote, strike me down if you dare and add the crime of murder to indiscipline, unquote. The troops apparently did not dare, and the mutiny died out. After serving as a legionary commander in northern Europe, Cassius distinguished himself during the Parthian War. Marcus's co-emperor, Lucius Verus, empowered Cassius to lead the assault on Ctesiphon, which ended the war. Whatever Cassius's negative views of the emperor... Marcus seems to have considered him a trustworthy and talented officer and rewarded him with major positions in the Eastern Empire. To put down an Egyptian rebellion in 172 and leave Marcus free to concentrate on the Marcomannic Wars to the north, Marcus gave Cassius proconsular powers over all the Eastern provinces, an almost unprecedented level of control for anyone to have besides an emperor. Despite being outnumbered by the rebels in Egypt, Cassius innovated, wearing them down through raids and fostering discontent among them. Soon, he'd crush the revolt. At some point, Cassius seems to have come to believe that Marcus was dead, which may have played a role in convincing him to rebel in the first place. How did he come to such a conclusion? Several ancient historians tell us that Marcus's wife, Faustina may have written Cassius to tell him that her husband had fallen ill during the Marcomannic campaign, and she feared he would die. She knew that Commodus was too young to rule and needed someone to step in and act as a regent in case he did. She may have asked Cassius to act in this capacity if the worst happened. We can't say for sure if Marcus's wife ever wrote such a letter, since all of Cassius's papers were burned after his death. But even if this was the case, how he got from being asked to act if Marcus died to actually deciding that the emperor had died is up for interpretation. Even if he had never believed that Marcus was dead, 
He may have had other reasons. As overall commander in the East, he saw how much resentment there was over the German campaign. At a time when the plague was decimating the economy and causing widespread famine, Marcus was taxing the East heavily to support a war that would have no impact on the East. The rebellion in Egypt that Cassius had to put down was likely a response to this discontent. The Western Empire mobilized to support the East during the Parthian War, but this seems to have been forgotten. Cassius' diary refers to Avidius as a good man, and perhaps he saw his rebellion as a positive thing for the empire, and not just pure greed. But it's clear that the trust Marcus placed in him would come back to haunt the emperor when Avidius used his unprecedented power to unite almost the entire eastern empire against him. Right on the eve of his total victory over the Germans and Sarmatians, word reached Marcus of the rebellion. He had no choice but to pull back, signing peace deals to extricate himself from a war which he'd been about to win. Instead of dictating terms, he was forced to be lenient and left the border with the seeds of future conflict already planted. It must have been an incredibly frustrating moment for Marcus, who seemed to spend his life rushing from fire to fire. While on campaign in the north, he wrote these words to himself in his notebook. It's tempting to believe he might have penned them after hearing about Cassius's rebellion as a reminder to himself to stay resolute and face down what fate threw at him. Quote, Be like the rocky promontory against which the restless surf continuously pounds. It stands fast while the churning sea is lulled to sleep at its feet. I hear you say, How lucky that this should happen to me. Not at all. Say instead, how lucky that I am not broken by what has happened and am not afraid of what is about to happen. The same blow might have struck anyone, but not many would have absorbed it without capitulation or complaint. Unquote. As resolute as Marcus was, his triumphant army was understandably angry to have this half victory after so many years of hard struggle, and after seeing so many of their comrades cut down before their time. When Marcus addressed his assembled troops in Germania, we might expect him to be furious over the betrayal, swearing vengeance against Avidius Cassius and all who supported him. But almost amazingly, he said no such thing to his gathered troops. We don't know how much of his speech was grandstanding on his well-known stoic reputation, and how much of it was his true character showing through, but it was something of a masterpiece. He displayed no anger or animosity towards Cassius, but just resignation to one more duty ahead and sadness that the people of the Empire were, apparently, bound for yet more bloodshed. He said he couldn't believe that someone he'd heaped with honors and admitted to the highest circles of government would betray him so and put the whole empire in danger. Had Cassius brought the matter to him, Marcus said he would have publicly put the matter before the Senate to decide which of them should rule. He reminded his troops, quote, For it is only in the public interest that I continue to incur toil and danger, and have spent so much time here beyond the bounds of Italy, an old man as now I am, an ailing, unable to take food without pain or sleep without care, unquote. Marcus's notebook, 
leaves us with no doubt that he did not enjoy court life, or the petty people he was forced to deal with as emperor. The ancient historians write that it was only with the greatest of reluctance that he accepted his role as heir to the throne in the first place. It's possible that Marcus was telling the truth, and that he would have stepped down if he could do so in the right way. But now that the rebellion was launched, it appears that stepping down was not something he could consider. And tired and sick as Marcus was, he had no choice but to march east and put down the usurper. Interestingly, he publicly promised to pardon Cassius and punish him only with banishment, while giving full pardons to all of his supporters. What could Marcus have been thinking? Such magnanimity in the face of betrayal seems like it would invite even more rebellion. This quotation from his journal goes a long way to explaining how he viewed the problematic people he came into contact with daily, and probably how he viewed Cassius. He penned this journal while he was encamped in Pannonia on the German frontier while wrapping up the German campaign, so Cassius may well have been on his mind while he was writing it. The journal entry reads, quote, Today you shall meet with meddling, ingratitude, insolence, treachery, slander, and selfishness, all due to their ignorance concerning the difference between what is good and bad. On the other hand, count yourself lucky enough to have long perceived the genuine nature of good as being honorable and beautiful, and the nature of evil as shameful. You have also perceived the true nature of your enemy, that he is your brother, not in the physical sense, but as a fellow citizen of the cosmos, sharing reason and the potential for wisdom and virtue. And because you perceive this, Nothing can injure you, because nobody can drag you into their wrongdoing. Neither can you be angry with your brother or frustrated with him, because you were born to work together, like a pair of hands or feet, or the upper and lower rows of a man's teeth. To obstruct each other is against nature's law, and frustration and dislike are forms of obstruction also, are they not? Unquote. Back in Rome, the Senate declared Cassius a public enemy. And notably, not a single Roman patrician of significance in the West supported the usurper. One man Cassius had hoped to sway to his cause. The governor of Cappadocia turned out to be a staunch supporter of Marcus and stayed loyal. Even if that hadn't been the case, the legions of Cappadocia seemed to be solidly pro-Marcus, which deprived the rebellion of additional troops that Cassius sorely needed. There were probably no more defections because of this simple calculus. Ovidius Cassius had at most seven legions. There were three in Syria, two in Palestine, one in Roman Arabia, and one in Egypt, giving him access to about 35,000 legionnaires and whatever auxiliaries he could get his hands on. The refusal of the governors of any of the other provinces to rebel made the prospect of reinforcement remote. On the other hand, Marcus had at least 23 legions under his control, or around 115,000 men, with a vast number of auxiliary troops. The Roman nobility's reaction is probably best summed up by the one-word letter that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, written by Herodes Atticus, a senator and former consul living in retirement in Greece. The letter found Cassius in May of 175 AD. It really included only one word, emanes, or you are mad. 
And I really like this vague accusation because it seems true no matter how you want to interpret what Herodes was getting at. You can look at it in the military sense. You're mad because you're trying to take on a vastly larger army whose troops have just been hardened by the crucible of the Marcomannic Wars. He may have been calling Cassius mad in the patriotic sense. The empire is crumbling down around us. The plague is piling bodies up in the street. Our economy is in ruins. The treasury is empty and barbarians are at the gates. And you think now is the time for a civil war? And he may have just called him mad in the indignant sense. You're betraying one of the most steady and competent rulers we as a nation have ever had. A man who has given you every honor you could have wished for, entrusted you with more power than anyone else but an emperor's had in generations, and you choose to repay him with betrayal? You are mad. The common people of the Western Empire also seem to have been solidly in favor of Marcus. The Augustan history tells us, quote, And there was no slight consternation in Rome, for many said that Avidius Cassius would advance on the city in the absence of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was singularly, singularly loved by all but the profligates, and that he would ravage it like a tyrant, unquote. This peace treaties of necessity in place. Marcus withdrew much of his army from the north and began marching east. The emperor sent a letter to Cassius offering generous peace terms. Marcus promised his life would be spared and his family's rights and property would not be taken if he surrendered now. If Cassius had really thought Marcus was dead, he'd now had the truth amply pointed out to him, but he refused to even acknowledge this overture and continued to prepare for war. But after news of the massive Roman army marching his way reached the rebels, a centurion loyal to Marcus, perhaps reading the writing on the wall, murdered Avidius Cassius just three months after his army had proclaimed him emperor. When Cassius's head was brought before Marcus, the emperor refused to look at it, obviously saddened by the waste. He would have no chance to forgive his enemy. Most of the citizens of the empire were glad to be spared the war. The Augustan history tells us, quote, The love felt for Marcus Aurelius Antoninus was most clearly manifested in the fact that it was with the consent of all save the citizens of Antioch, which was Cassius's home city and headquarters, that Avidius was slain, unquote. That is probably an exaggeration, as much of the rest of the East had supported the rebellion, Marcus must have realized that if the East was upset enough to take up arms in support of an usurper, he owed it to them to investigate their complaints. Dismissing most of his army back to the North, he set off on a tour of the East with his son, Commodus, who was now a teenager, and his advisors. They stopped in Syria, Palestine, Asia Minor, and Egypt, explaining policies and simply letting a people who thought of themselves as neglected see their emperor from far-off Rome and let them know that he was paying attention to them. The limited records we have of this visit show an emperor and his heir showing face in public venues, consulting with local governors and councils, and occasionally taking time to chat with local religious leaders told that Marcus didn't think much of Palestine, but he did strike up a conversation with the legendary Jewish rabbi Judah, and the two seemed to have gotten along well. In Alexandria, Egypt, a large city of 400,000 and the empire's center of learning, 
We're told Mark is arrested for some time over the winter of 175 to 176, receiving an embassy from Parthia and talking with local philosophers and scholars. Here, he did away with the robes of state and walked the streets as a normal citizen, wearing only a simple Greek-style tunic. Here, we see Marcus's inclination not to take on airs being expressed for all his subjects to see. He was just another scholar visiting Alexandria, albeit one with the weight of the world on his shoulders. By spring, the imperial party was ready to return home and started their slow journey back to Rome. For a man who had spent so much of his life at war, Marcus must have hoped that the worst trials of his life had passed. The Parthians, who had also been ravaged by the Antonine Plague, were uneager to renew their hostilities, and Marcus had reason to hope that his peace treaties with the Germans and Sarmatians would keep northern Europe secure for a time. The plague seemed to be popping up less and less frequently. Perhaps now his people might find some respite from the three horrors of war, disease, and hunger that had plagued them so regularly for the last 15 years. We shall see. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll be addressing a question that has puzzled people for a good, I don't know, 1900-odd years. Why didn't Marcus Aurelius kill his son Commodus? By this point in the series, Marcus is no longer a young man, and his health is constantly in question. So how could he allow someone so ill-suited to rulership remain as his heir when he knew full well how important it was to have someone devoted to duty in the emperor's top spot? It's a more nuanced question than many realize, and we'll be talking about Marcus's revolutionary succession plans and how horribly wrong they went. Are you enjoying the turning wheel? If so, can you do me two favors? First, please give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use and write a few words about why you like it. This really helps more people find the show, which will help it succeed in the long run. Second, please consider supporting the podcast financially. Donating a few bucks will get you the exclusive bonus episode from this series, episode 9, which covers Marcus's interesting interactions with the plebs, his lower class subjects. We also talk about his legal reforms and his approach to slavery, one of the bedrock foundations of the empire. You can also submit questions for the Q&A episodes, and you'll receive an ebook containing the entire story of Marcus's life as conveyed in this podcast in one sweet collection. Please go to patreon.com slash the turning wheel to make a donation. Thanks for listening and see you next time.